there's a lot of evidence out there that gun culture and the view on the right to keep and bear arms has varied from region to region. The Second Amendment looks different today, depending on where you are in this country, and it looked different depending on where you were in the country in the 1800s. So the question and the challenge is how to preserve the local and regional gun culture with the need to also impose some nationwide standards. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Last episode, we looked at how guns were used in colonial times and how that shaped the drafting of the Second Amendment. This episode, we're going to look at how gun culture is varied and continues to across the country. We're also going to look at ideas about when gun violence is okay, appropriate, even socially mandated. We're going to complicate our understanding of gun use, which is important to do for two reasons. First, regional gun culture informs legal rulings that affect us all nationally. And second, if we want to include law-abiding gun owners in solving the problem of gun violence, we need to acknowledge the nuances of gun use in America. To start, we're going to pick up where we left off, in the first few decades of our country's history. One of the first changes to our nation's gun laws came in 1846 in the Georgia Supreme Court decision Nunn versus Georgia. It has to do with an 1837 state law that banned carrying of pistols and certain specified knives. That's Eric Rubin. I am a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law, and I'm also an adjunct professor at New York University School of Law. As he explains, in 1837, the Georgia legislature passed a law banning the open carry of certain types of weapons, including handguns, and a man named Hawkins Nunn was caught carrying one. Most courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, did not think that the Federal Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment applied to states at that time, but the Georgia Supreme Court held that they did, and the Georgia Supreme Court struck down the law, saying that it violated Hawkins Nunn's Second Amendment rights. It was the first gun regulation to be struck down on the basis of the Second Amendment. And even though it happened almost 200 years ago... The Supreme Court nonetheless looked to none and to other 19th century cases in order to decide the 2008 decision, District of Columbia v. Heller. Columbia versus Heller. It's one of the most important recent decisions about gun regulation and one that has shaped the gun rights debate. We're going to look at it more closely, just not quite yet. First, we're going to look at why it wasn't a coincidence that such a decision about gun use came from the South. And to do that, we're going to talk with Dove Cohen, a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois. If you look at different laws related to things like gun control, to corporal punishment, one of the things you find is that all these laws and policies tend to be much more accepting of violence in the South. Huh. Why would that be? Some of it has to do with what we talked about in our last episode, like the fear of slave insurrections in the South. But to say it's just about slavery would be a vast oversimplification. A lot of other factors were at play, factors that still affect us today, even though slavery has been abolished and the Western frontier settled. One of those factors is something sociologists and historians call honor culture. There are a lot of different kinds of honor culture. They take on different flavors and nuances all around the world and over time as they combine with other cultural factors such as religion, 
overall levels of wealth. That's Ryan Brown. He's a social psychologist and the managing director of the Doer Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. He studies honor culture and how it relates to gun use and gun violence. Probably the defining feature of honor cultures over time and around the world is their intense emphasis on the protection of reputation. In an honor culture, people build reputations uh, very deliberately as a way of protecting themselves from threats, from social threats. Here's Dove Cohen again. The guarantee of good behavior in an honor culture is your reputation. Because if you establish that you are not to be messed with on seemingly small issues like insult, then that means people won't mess with you on bigger issues, right? Like stealing your stuff uh, or assaulting you um, uh, and hurting your family. Okay, but where does honor culture come from? Is this just a Southern thing or something bigger? Honor cultures exist all over the world and are thought to develop in places where for a long period of time you have a combination of two things. First, an insecurity or unreliability in access to resources. So it's not the same thing as poverty, but it often goes hand in hand with poverty. So that's one of the factors. The other factor is weak, unreliable, or altogether absent law enforcement. So another way of saying that is in the absence of a strong state that has a rule of law that everybody respects, uh, and when they don't respect it, the state will step in and enforce the law. When that doesn't happen, you combine that with resource insecurity, there's a sort of social vacuum that exists there, uh, and, and people respond to social vacuums just the same way that nature responds to a vacuum. They fill it. And one of the ways that people tend to fill this sort of a social vacuum is by developing the norms, the beliefs, the values, the priorities typical of honor cultures. Honor culture isn't isolated to the South in the U.S. It can be found elsewhere, too. The same thing happens like an inner-city gang culture. In an inner-city gang culture, you know, there's an expression, call for the police, call for an ambulance, call for a pizza, see which gets there first. And in places where the pizza beats the ambulance and the police, those are cultures where people have to let it be known that they're not to be messed with. So in inner city gangs, you also see this honor culture. The important thing in an honor culture is you have this reputation. And the reputation is what guarantees that you'll abide by the local norms. It's what guarantees you'll behave appropriately. So the untrustworthy people in an honor culture are the people who don't have a sense of their own honor, uh, who can be shamed, and who aren't worried about their reputation and the status in the eyes of other people. But in the South, with its rural communities, decentralized power, and large slave populations, the balance of power was precarious. In other words, it was a textbook setting for honor culture. But it wasn't just those power dynamics. The development of honor culture was also the result of geography and economy. These were often herding cultures. And in a herding culture, your wealth can be stolen instantly. Right. So if you're like a crop farmer, no one's going to come onto your land, harvest all your crops and sell them. Right. It's just 
they can't do that. Um, but if you're in a culture where you have a herd and a herd that's grazing, your wealth has little legs on it and your wealth can be rustled away from you instantly. In these environments, it's incredibly important to establish that you're not someone to be messed with, that someone who messes with you is in for trouble. Even the agrarian plantation economy depended on robable wealth, slave labor. Slaves were themselves extremely valuable commodities. They could and did escape. It was a form of property theft. They were robbing their masters of themselves. Southern honor culture might go back even further than that Southern way of life. The people who settled the South came from a particular region between the borderland of England and Scotland. And for hundreds of years, this was contested territory. Even to this day, there exists more of an honor culture in these parts of the UK. So I did a comparison a few years ago on three key outcomes related to honor dynamics. So one was homicide rates. Another was suicide rates. Suicide is also elevated in honor cultures and accidental death rates. That was the third one that we examined in Scotland. Again, that's been shown uh, in studies in the U.S. So we compared Scotland to Ireland and England and Wales on those three key dimensions. And we do see, in fact, elevated rates of homicide, suicide, and death by accident in Scotland even today. And, and this is important because the circumstances of life in Scotland today are nothing like they were 300 years ago. This culture made its way to the southern colonies, and that culture has diffused through the rest of the country. This is one reason why studying culture is so fascinating and challenging. Some explanations for how a culture develops can be pretty clear, pretty rational. Others, less so. Cultural norms often persist past the point where you'd say they're functional or adaptive. It's like, you know, the story of the woman who always cut the ends of her meatloaf off. And someone said, oh, mom, why do you cut the ends of the meatloaf off? Well, that's the way you do it. That's how I learned it from my mom. And so they asked the grandmother, why did you cut the ends of the meatloaf off? Well, that's the way you do it. That's how you cook meatloaf. They took it one step further and they asked the great-grandmother, and she said, well, I cut the ends of the meatloaf off so it would fit in the oven. Whatever the reasons, honor culture can help explain certain behavior we see, from the micro, how people interact with each other, to the macro, like how violence is legislated. Take, for example, an escalating conflict between two strangers in a public space. Maybe you've seen something like it before, or maybe you've seen it on TV. What started out as a strange look which might not have even been a look at you, turns into a brawl out in the parking lot. Somebody pulls a knife or a gun and somebody ends up dead. So it's this escalating pattern of violence and retaliation, all to protect your reputation. To some of us, the idea that a dirty look would start a parking lot brawl, well, that's just stupid. But in honor cultures, that same calculation can yield a different result. Probably the best examples of those kinds of laboratory studies, though, are done by Dove Cohen and his colleagues. In one study, we sent out letters to employers in the north and the south of the United States. In these letters, the person wrote to the employer and said, Hi, I'm relocating to your area. I'm a hardworking 27-year-old man. I've got good references. Uh, I'm eager to work. 
there's one thing you should know, though, um, and that is I killed someone. And in the letter, the person goes on to describe the circumstances of the killing. And the circumstances were that the person was in a bar when he was taunted by someone who alleged that he had slept with the man's fiance. Right. So the person keeps taunting them. It's taken outside. They get into a fight. Uh, and the writer of the letter, the protagonist of the story, punches the person who had been taunting him. That person's head smacks against the wall uh, and freakishly they died. What you find when you send these letters to employers in the North and the South is that uh, Southern employers were more likely to include an application uh, and send back a nice note, including some notes saying, well, gosh, anyone could have been in the situation you were in um, and you did the right thing. Southern employers give a much warmer reception to the person who had killed in defense of their honor than northern employers do. So what does this all have to do with gun laws? Honor culture makes violence socially acceptable, even necessary. Violence is legitimated in honor cultures in self-defense and in response to insults and affronts. Sometimes in honor cultures, you have to preemptively uh, demonstrate uh, your toughness um, as a matter of reputation. For example, in the Southern culture we've studied, Southerners don't approve of violence more in the abstract, and they don't approve of violence more in a number of situations. But after an insult or when it comes to protecting themselves or protecting their family, Southerners are much more likely to say that violence is legitimate and appropriate. They display very strong uh, politeness norms in the South. But if someone crosses over into disrespecting you in a way that you can't easily brush off, you can't easily ignore, then the beliefs and values and priorities of an honor culture dictate that you have to respond aggressively. You're expected to retaliate. And it's best if you do so by raising the stakes. And in a world with guns, this need to raise the stakes and defend your status has made gun ownership pretty widespread in honor cultures. Places with a culture of honor also tend to be places with looser gun control laws. They tend to be places that uh, legitimate self-defense rather than the rule that says you need to retreat until your back is to the wall. We did surveys of rural places in the northern Midwest and in the south, and everyone had guns. But the southerners were more likely to say it was for self-protection rather than sport, sport meaning hunting in this case. This idea that guns are crucial for self-defense has become a huge part of the gun rights argument in the U.S., and it's become very much a part of our legal understanding of the Second Amendment today. In the 2008 case, District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment allows individuals to carry arms for self-defense. Here's Eric again from the top of the show. When the Supreme Court decided the Heller decision in 2008, it didn't have a slow buildup of federal case law on which to rely in that decision. It looked to state case law and it looked to 
case law in the 1800s. And those cases arose predominantly out of the South. Southern honor culture and gun rights are inextricably intertwined and have affected our entire country's outlook and laws on guns. Honor culture doesn't explain everything, of course. Eric made this clear when talking about the evolution of gun restrictions. I wouldn't want this to come across as putting too much emphasis on Southern culture. Obviously, like the United States has a gun culture throughout the country. We don't just see honor culture in the South. We see it out West, the inner city, really anywhere the conditions are right. But one thing is clear. If we want to stop gun violence in America, in addition to changing laws and policies, we need to know the role culture plays in these debates, and not just in the South. So the question and the challenge is how to preserve the local and regional gun culture with the need to also impose some nationwide standards. As Jay Dickey and Mark Rosenberg believed, we can dramatically reduce gun violence while still respecting cultures of gun use and ownership. In fact, gun safety advocates need to learn about more than honor culture. They need to learn more about violence itself. It's just this hugely broad field. There's so many different kinds of violence and so many different types of violence that look exactly the same but come from wildly different motivations. That's Rory Miller. He's the author of Meditations on Violence, a comparison of martial arts training and real-world violence, among other books. He also has some experience with the subject firsthand. I spent a long time working in the jail and a little bit of time in Iraq. I spoke with Rory about violence, how to avoid it, how to manage it, and what to do when you encounter it. We talked mostly about what Rory calls social violence, non-military, non-domestic. This is the kind of violence you might encounter in public. It's the kind that inspires some people to learn self-defense. And it motivates some to buy a gun. As Rory explains, there are a few different types of social violence. First, where young men gather in groups. Young men are stupid, there's a lot of testosterone, they're trying to work out their status, and bad stuff happens. Um, where territories are in dispute, and this goes to war, but it goes to a bunch of other things. The edges of gang territory are far more dangerous than deep inside gang territory. Um, some violence happens when you don't know the rules. Every group has rules. They have ways you're allowed to behave, ways that you aren't, and they're always enforced. If the group is tight, everyone knows what the rules are, and they agree. If someone violates a rule, they can usually fix it just with a look or a, or a word. If someone doesn't agree on the rules or doesn't respect the rules, then... Uh, society on some level will band together and teach a lesson. For most civilians, the only time that they really have to worry about it is when they go to a place where they don't know the rules. Unless they're pathological assholes, but for most normal people, it's when they don't know the rules. They try to act like they're at home when they aren't. All of those are social. Those types of violence are um, working out status or territory or teaching a lesson. Rory thinks everyone would benefit from being prepared for violence, even if they're not expecting to encounter it. And some of his reasons sound a lot like honor culture reasoning. I like strong people way better than I like weak people. Um, when everybody's strong, there's a mutual respect, and there's no consequence-free way to abuse you or to exploit you or to hurt you. And so in that sense, self-defense is about not letting anyone exploit you against your will. This probably doesn't come as a surprise, but Rory's a gun owner. Firearms are, in my opinion, incredibly important for two reasons. For me personally, they extend my sphere of influence. If I see someone killing a child 20 meters away, 
without a handgun, I can't do anything about that except watch. And that would hurt. So they increase your sphere of influence. Um, the other incredibly valuable thing about firearms is, I mean, humans are tool using creatures. And you remove those tools, then we revert very quickly to the biggest and the strongest just takes what they want. Tools allow the smaller and weaker to have their own say in that equation. They are a huge equalizer. Do you ever carry? I don't. I'm actually going for my first course in a couple weeks now. I would really love if after you've just carry for a week and just feel the weight of the responsibility and how it makes you think. Because it's, um, I know a few people have carried enough over time that they kind of forget that they're carrying, but very few. It is an immense responsibility. It tends to make people mature very quick. Rory wants for people to feel empowered and in control of their environment. You know, if I could create a gift in the universe, it would be to people to understand that they have that ability and that right to make their life go the way they want it to. And that they're smart enough, strong enough, adaptable enough to influence everything around them. They're not pawns in this game, they're players. It's just that what feels empowering, what it means to feel safe and feel in control of your environment, can mean something different for gun rights and gun safety advocates. Whether it's because of local culture, the economy, or your own psychology, there are many reasons to own and use guns. Many gun owners are safe and responsible, and they can be part of the solution if we respect what makes them want to own guns in the first place. But there are also many gun owners who aren't responsible. That's why we've got a gun violence problem. Next week, we'll focus on the present, on how guns are used today. We'll look at how people's opinions can change about gun rights and regulation and where we might find some common ground. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Dan Richards and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.